Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week, what's wrong with Deutsche Bank? Deutsche's in a real squeeze. It's hard to see how it can become profitable. Microfinance makes a comeback. Very oddly, in the last few years, microfinance, or microlending more specifically, has really boomed. And Norway's sovereign wealth fund sets an example for the world. It's professionally done. It's run quite frugally. You don't have very highly paid managers. But first, last week, Deutsche Bank's shares dropped to a 30-year low over concerns about the impact of the demand from the US Department of Justice for a $14 billion fine for mis-selling mortgage-backed securities before the financial crisis. But pressure on the shares has eased on rumours that Deutsche might settle with the DOJ for a lot less. Here with me to discuss how Deutsche might move forward is our banking editor, Patrick Lane. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Simon. The talk is of a settlement of around $5 billion. That's a huge markdown. Is, is that sort of reduction really possible? Well, it is. Judging by what's been reported about what happened with American banks, who have been through the same excruciating process with the DOJ already, it is thought that Goldman Sachs was asked for $15 billion before settling for five. And Citigroup was asked for $13 billion before settling for seven. So it's it's highly likely that Deutsche will end up paying a lot, lot less than $14 billion. Settling with the DOJ is not going to solve all of Deutsche Bank's problems, is it? Well, what other issues does it face? It's underlying problem is a lack of profitability. I mean, a lot of European banks have that problem, but Deutsche seem to be more acute than most. In its, its domestic market in Germany is very, very competitive. Germany has lots and lots of banks serving corporate Germany. Deutsche is not particularly big as a retail player in Germany. In fact, it wants to get even smaller. And if you look at really, really big German companies, you know, companies like Siemens or Bosch and companies in that sort of league. Well, they don't have to go to Deutsche Bank. They can go to any international uh, corporate investment bank. And at the moment, it's the Americans that rule the roost there, not Deutsche and the other Europeans. So Deutsche is in a real squeeze. It's hard to see how it can become profitable. At the same time, it's got a weaker capital position than most of its rivals. It's not cripplingly weak. Its uh, core tier one ratio, which is the number that uh, analysts and regulators look at, is 10.8%, which is less than those of its peers. It has plans to build it up to 12.5%. And it has set out a way to do that by selling its stake in a Chinese bank, which has taken a little bit longer than expected, uh, selling Postbank, which is a retail division, and through other means. The problem is those look a little bit stretched, especially if you can't see where the profits are coming from. I just want to play a clip now from Mario Draghi, president of the European Central Bank. He was in Germany last week, insisting the ECB is not responsible for the country's financial woes. If a bank represents a systemic threat for the eurozone, this cannot be because of low interest rates. It has to do with other reasons. What should we make of that assessment? It does run counter to the views of many who remain critical of monetary policy and how it impacts banks. Or you could say that the underlying problem is is slow growth across Europe and low inflation, which in turn has led to low and negative interest rates. 
and and also the fact that Europe has decided, or European governments have decided, that monetary policy through the ECB has to take the full brunt of trying to revive the eurozone economy. So there's no help coming from fiscal policy. Therefore, interest rates are low, interest rates are negative, and and that's causing problems for well, certainly all German banks and pretty much banks all across Europe. Patrick, the IMF has described Deutsche Bank as the riskiest of a couple of dozen banks of global importance, of systemic risk to the whole global financial system. Is there really a serious risk of contagion? Might Deutsche be to 2016 what Lehman Brothers was to 2008? Look, it's very, it's very hard to it's very hard to know at the moment. It it just doesn't look that bad at all. But but the very fact that we had two thousand and eight and we we had the effects of Lehman does make people concerned. But at the moment, it it doesn't look as serious as that. Patrick Lane, banking editor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Now we're going from a large lender to small borrowers. Microfinance is largely the practice of lending tiny amounts of money to poor people to start businesses. It was pioneered in the 1970s by Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. And it was seen as an admirable and sustainable way of lifting people out of poverty. But has it all been plain sailing? And where could microfinance innovate and improve? Our social policy editor, Joel Budd, joins me now. Joel, first of all, it's been 10 years since Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with Grameen Bank. How has the microfinance industry changed in that period? Well, it's been through a slightly weird sort of U-bend shape. So there's there's something occasionally called the curse of the Nobel Prize, which certainly happened to Mohammed Yunus and, and uh, Grameen Bank. So almost immediately after they were awarded the Nobel, microfinance started to run into all sorts of difficulties. Terrible stories started to appear about borrowers in villages sort of being extorted or, or held in meetings until they could pay up, so they, and, and they had to sell their chickens and sell their cooking pots and so on. And the other thing that happened was that people became very, very overstretched, and we, we saw in some places, including in India, waves of defaults, which wiped out some of the micro-lenders. And this thing, which had looked like it was going to be one of the great anti-poverty tools in the world, was really by about 2008, 2009, in a state of crisis. And regulations started to come in, which made things very difficult for the lenders. But very oddly, uh, in the last few years, microfinance, or micro-lending more specifically, has really boomed. I suppose we should make clear that we're not talking just about a South Asian phenomenon, not just Bangladesh and India, but this is a practice that took over across the developing world, right? And what accounts for that U-bend, the uptick in its fortunes? Yes, that's right. It's always been a sort of global kind of poor world phenomenon. And in fact, there's been quite a lot of micro-lending even in Eastern Europe. But it's really driven by South Asia. India is is by far the most important market and Bangladesh is second. And what happened in those countries was that regulations came in, which put the industry on a slightly firmer footing. And the micro-lenders simply started to be able to make it work. The way micro-lending works in India broadly is that micro-finance institutions borrow at about 15% and they lend at about 25%. And they've become so large and so efficient that they they can make the sums work out. And there's a lot of headroom, so it's growing incredibly fast in India at the moment. That still 
to most people would sound like an enormously high interest rate. Is that really that much better than could be offered by traditional money lenders? Yes, it is better, or for the most part, it's better. The problem, though, with microfinance is that it's it's terribly inflexible. It tends to be the case that lenders still want you to be part of a group if you're going to borrow. So the idea is that everybody in a group is responsible for everybody else's debts. And they still tend to require repayment on a very, very rigid monthly or even weekly cycle, beginning immediately with no grace period, no delay, which, of course, is not something that a Western borrower would ever have to do. And is the industry innovating? Are there, is it introducing new products, new practices? It is. It's slow. Some of the really exciting innovation is not in South Asia, but it's in East Africa. So two big things are happening there. One is that uh, some charities have managed to make micro-lending work for small farmers. So they offer seeds and fertilizer on credit bundled together with agricultural insurance and training and of course if you're lending to farmers you can't expect repayment immediately it takes crops a long time to grow and so they have very 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 flexible loans which can be paid back after an entire year if the farmer wants to and they're making that work very well and the other big thing in east africa is that A lot of loans are now being advanced by the telecommunications companies through mobile money. Apart from that, apart from mobile money, has anybody introduced anything else in the past 10 years that does microfinance's job any better? Is it still the best deal in town if you're poor and looking to get richer? There's not much else out there. I mean, of course, most people in poor countries who borrow money don't borrow money from micro lenders. They borrow money from relatives. uh, They borrow money from employers, that sort of thing. To an extent, the banks are reaching downwards a little bit. So, I mean, microfinance is supposed to reach the sort of people who are never reached by banks because they're too small and they don't have any collateral. To an extent, the banks are starting to reach a little bit further down to slightly smaller businesses. And that's that's probably going to carry on happening. And the other thing that that's happening is, as I say, these tiny loans, sort of Wonga.com type loans that are being offered by the by the telcos. Joe Budd, social policy editor, thank you very much. Finally, we move to Oslo, where we've been taking a look at the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's a massive fund that plays a huge role at home in stabilising the Norwegian economy and abroad as a very important global investor. Adam Roberts joins me down the line. First of all, Adam, the Norwegian fund, what is it? What does it do? Well, the Norwegian oil fund is is a remarkable (laughs) creature. The Norwegians started pumping oil some 45 years ago in the early 70s, but it wasn't until the 90s they decided they should start saving their money. And on the face of it, the fund has done extraordinarily well. It has getting on for $800 billion in the fund, and that represents a huge amount of money that has been saved rather than spent. And Norwegians talk about a contract with future generations, an ability to save money today that can be spent later on when the oil revenues no longer flow. That makes it, I believe, the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. What's it doing with all that money? Where's it invested? Well, Norway has done some clever things. So, for example, one rule is that the money has to be invested abroad. All of that $800 billion or so has been invested in foreign equities, foreign bonds or foreign property. 
that's helpful for Norway's economy because it becomes counter-cyclical, it becomes uh, something that flows against the currency. So when the Norwegian currency is strong, they take all this money and they put it abroad, and then when the Norwegian currency is weak, they can start to tap those foreign investments. Um, the result is that Norway is now one of the biggest investors in equities in the world. Over 2% of all listed shares in Europe are now owned by the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and over 1% of all shares in the world are also owned by the fund. It's quite unusual, isn't it, for an advanced, wealthy democracy to have a sovereign wealth fund, presumably partly because they face pre- would face such pressure to spend the money at home. Doesn't Norway's face similar pressure? There are pressures, and there will be pressures, for example, if inequality grows in Norway because of the influx of, of migrants, or if the homogeneity and, and the general commitment to saving this money for future generations, if that breaks down. There are some I spoke to in Oslo a few weeks ago who worried that younger politicians, newer politicians, are less committed to the idea of saving than the older ones were. And what about the fund's performance? Does does that come under criticism from politicians saying it should be making more money and doing other things with it? I think the the scrutiny of the fund is often misplaced. There's a great deal of debate about whether the fund does better than the the market at getting certain returns given you know the sort of companies it's invested in there's very little debate about the type of assets that the fund chooses to invest in and so the fact that for many years it was invested in bonds then it's moved into listed shares and equities nobody really debates whether they shouldn't really be getting into much broader asset classes? Why not get more into infrastructure? Why not get earlier into emerging markets? And so a few critics have pointed out that if Norway had been much earlier at investing in places like India and China, it could have made a lot more money in the first place. One critic I talked to suggested Norway has missed out on as much as $150 billion because it failed to get into emerging markets early enough. Nevertheless, you're describing what is, by most standards, I guess, an extraordinary success story. What could it teach other sovereign wealth funds, which there are a lot around the world now, particularly in developing resource-rich developing countries? Could they learn from Norway? I think for Norway, you have to break its success into two parts. One part that's probably harder to copy is the political consensus that sits around the fund. But the more practical things that any fund and any country could adopt would be on the way that the fund itself is managed. And so it's remarkably transparent. It lists every, it details every investment. It's open to scrutiny and debate. It's professionally done. It's run quite frugally. You don't have very highly paid managers. So there's a certain moderation and frugality of the fund, which probably others could learn a lot from too. I think the lesson we've learned is we should all move to Norway. Thank you very much, Adam. That's all for Money Talks this week. To read more on the stories mentioned in this show, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 